Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 345th edition of Tucked In Tuesday. And joining me this morning is my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Welcome back. Good morning, Chuck. You, I was missing you, and uh, hello, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about sepsis 3. It's in the news because United Healthcare announced it's going to use this definition to determine if sepsis is clinically validated. That's right. It seems like United Healthcare is going to want the SOFA score to be used to validate sepsis. SOFA, of course, is sequential organ failure assessment. And a friend of this broadcast, Dr. Edward Hugh, is standing by to report our lead story on sepsis 3. And the fourth quarter coding clinic from the American Hospital Association was released recently. Gloria Ann Bryant is standing by to report on that story. There's a developing story that we're monitoring, and that's the mystery disease that has hospitalized some 68 kids across the country. It's acute flaccid myelitis. It's also known as AFM. We have two reports. Lori Johnson will report on the coding issues associated with AFM, and Dr. Jennifer Rubin, who specializes in demyelinating diseases, will have a clinical perspective on AFM. Dr. Rubin is an attending physician in the neurology division of Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. We have much news to report during this broadcast, so we begin this morning with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD-10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. Use the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks for having me on. And... The race for Florida's governor has already been marked by divisive politics and controversy in the hours following the state's primary election on Tuesday. And when it comes to medical marijuana, the gubernatorial primary winners are sharply divided. On the Democratic side, Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum has positioned himself as squarely pro-legalization. Gillum, who received the endorsement of Senator Bernie Sanders, who become Florida's first black governor elected, wants uh, the adult use of cannabis to be legal and accessible in the Sunshine State. Just yesterday, Florida Governor Rick Scott's administration appealed a judge's order to license new businesses in one of the country's hottest medical marijuana markets or risk being held in contempt of court. Scott's administration filed the notice to appeal Friday, less than three hours before the 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time deadline, the News Service of Florida reported. The governor, who himself is in a tight race to unseat U.S. Senator Bill Nelson, a Democrat, consulted with Republican legislators according to the news service, before making this move. In other news related to medical marijuana, Leon County Circuit Court Charles Dotson recently ruled that the state law restricting the number of medical marijuana businesses is unconstitutional. Florida had approved licenses for 14 vertically integrated uh, MMJ operators, each of which can open up to 25 dis- dispensaries across the state. The state has been slow to approve additional licenses. The judge's ruling called for the state to license additional MMJ operators, including Tampa-based Flora Grown, which was a plaintiff in the case. The judge's ruling, if upheld, would open Florida's market to more MMJ businesses and boost competition. Obviously, the current license holders want to protect their interests and values, which is based on limiting the licenses, the limited licensing scheme. And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Timothy Powell. Tim is the compliance expert. He's also an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's October the 23rd, 2018, and you're listening to the 345th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Are you ready to sit for a HEMA's industry-regarded certified coding specialist physician-based exam? Well, don't sweat it. AHIMA offers resources to prepare you to sit with confidence, to achieve your goals, and to grow your career. The CCSB Exam Prep pairs on-demand webinars covering key domains with an interactive learning session, making it easy to prepare on your schedule. Gain access to additional study tips and a Q&A with a coding expert during the upcoming virtual learning session on December 19th. AHIMA encourages self-information professionals to never stop learning or expanding their skills, and they are dedicated to offering you continuous support. Get all your exam prep materials at ahimastore.org. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Our Tuesday focuses on the mysterious disease that has hospitalized some 68 kids across the country. It's acute flaccid myelitis, also known as AFM. We have two reports. Lori Johnson reports on the coding implications of AFM. And then we'll hear from Dr. Jennifer Rubin, a child neurologist who will report on the clinical aspects of AFM. Here now is Lori Johnson. There has been much discussion in the news regarding AFM, acute flaccid myelitis. The Center for Disease Control, the CDC, reports that this condition appears to be spreading as there are 62 confirmed cases in 22 states. Since 2014, there have been a total of 386 cases reported. I know that there are six cases in the Pittsburgh area where I live. Dr. Jennifer Rubin, who appears later, will talk about the clinical aspects. As Chuck said, when I looked at the ICD-10-CM index for this condition, I was surprised that there was not a specific code for AFM. Under myelitis, there is not a subterm for flaccid. Acute appears in the non-essential modifiers. The default code is G04.91, which is myelitis unspecified. There is an opportunity to comment for the CDC to consider a code during March 2016 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. The CDC has the ability to create and implement codes outside of the usual code development process when there's a public health concern. In my article today, I suggested coding some of the symptoms for AFM when treating this condition in an attempt to provide some specificity. On another note, football season is in full swing. The topic of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, is always pertinent during this time. I had a person reach out to me last night asking questions about CTE as she believes that her father committed suicide in 1983 due to this condition. We have become aware of CTE in 2015 with the release of the movie Concussion. I imagine that anyone who who played football at the high school, college, or semi-pro level would be at risk for this condition. Stay tuned for more information on these news stories. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant with Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Lori. And you can read Lori's reporting on that very topic this morning in the ICD-10 Monitor News. (laughs) 
And now for our second report on AFM, here is Dr. Jennifer Rubin. Good morning, Dr. Rubin. Good morning. So we heard a little bit about acute flaccid myelitis. It's an illness characterized by acute onset of flaccid limb paralysis and myelitis. Myelitis is just inflammation of the spinal cord, and it primarily affects the gray matter. So AFM usually begins with a prodrome of respiratory or gastrointestinal illness about one week prior to the weakness. And then patients can experience back or neck pain, slurred speech, facial weakness, droopy eyelids or ptosis, and trouble swallowing. And the limb weakness usually is asymmetric and associated with decreased tone and diminished reflexes with normal sensation. This presentation of AFM differs from demyelinating transverse myelitis, which preferentially affects the white matter of the cord, leading to more symmetric weakness with a sensory level and hyperreflexia or increased reflexes. Severe cases of AFM may be associated with respiratory failure requiring ventilatory support. Um, when we analyze um, cerebral spinal fluid findings in these affected individuals, you can see increased lymphocytes and elevated protein, but it's not universal. An MRI of the spine includes, can include lesions in the central or gray matter of the spinal cord. Treatment for acute flaccid myelitis is supportive, including occupational and physical therapy. Um, but some patients have been treated with current treatments available for transverse myelitis, including steroids, IVIG, and then plasmapheresis. The CDC does not have any specific treatment recommendations. Regarding prognosis, the Journal of Neurology published outcomes of a small group of children followed one year out in Colorado. Eight of the 12 children completed the study, so it's a small study. Out of those, six out of eight had persistent motor deficits at one year, and two demonstrated full recovery. MRI performed in seven, follow-up MRI performed in seven of the eight children showed significant improvement or normalization in all but one child. I typically tell families if you're seeing improvement, you can still expect to see improvement. It can take a while. Surveillance demonstrates that AFM cases generally peak in September and October with a biennial pattern. So there was a peak of cases in 2014 and 2016, and then less cases were reported in 2015 and 17, predicting an increased number of cases this season. According to the latest numbers from the Chicago Department of Health, the U.S. has confirmed 62 cases among 150 patients under investigation from 22 states. The CDC suspects that AFM is multifactorial and no causative or candidate um, pathogens have been identified. They found various viruses in about half the cases, including enterovirus, and, so far, and the majority of cases have been in children. The CDC is collecting information on any patients that fit the criteria, and they're casting a very broad net, regardless of the age of the patient, lab findings, or MRI findings. Clinicians should collect specimens from patients suspected of having AFM as early as possible in the course of the illness, including spinal fluid, blood, nasopharyngeal specimens, and stool. Specimen collection and reporting information can be found on their website, www.cdc.gov. Thank you. Over to you, Erica. I actually do have a question for you, Jennifer. Um, I yeah. was an emergency physician, and I'm curious, how rapidly does it usually progress, and what's the appropriate disposition from the ED? Like, do these kids all go to the unit prophylactically? Typically, they have the viral prodrome or the, um, and then head and neck pain, and then the weakness typically progresses over hours. So 
So I would say that, and typically it's a monoparesis. So usually it's asymmetric. One side is affected more than the other, and it's a monoparesis. It usually affects one limb or one extremity more than the other. So I would say it depends upon the acuity level of your hospital and your comfort. I think all these kids need to be admitted for observation. And I think assuming that their respiratory status is stable, they can probably be admitted to the floor, assuming that there is PICU backup. The majority of the children do not have respiratory compromise. Thank you. That was really interesting. That was Dr. Jennifer Rubin. Dr. Rubin is an attending physician in the Neurology Division of Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Thanks, Erica, very much. And thank you, Dr. Rubin, for joining us this morning. This morning, we're also reporting on a recently released the fourth quarter coding clinic for the American Hospital Association. Here now with that report is Gloria Ann Bryant. Great to be here and announcing the AHA coding clinic fourth quarter, which was released last week. This publication is an official coding source and resource one that all HIM coding and CDI professionals will want to read over closely in order to be compliant. Today, briefly, I want to highlight a few things in this issue. First, they have provided, as they always do in the fourth quarter, an official coding guideline changes, and that includes the revisions and changes to any official guideline. We did report on that earlier in another broadcast. In addition, in this issue, the ICD-10-CM-PCS coding changes, new and revised codes, are discussed and covered in detail. There's lots of great information in there. And the ICD-10 monitor articles also discuss those changes, so you can look back on those and refresh your memory on those coding-specific changes that took effect October 1st. Now, a big topic in this coding clinic issue is the detailed narrative regarding the coding of body mass index, or BMI. There have been several coding questions over the last several years submitted for the fourth quarter. They've now published a variety of coding scenarios. They've discussed and provided guidance and answer on them on pages 77 through 83 of the publication. For example, there is a situation when there's documentation of a diagnosis of obesity or morbid obesity is documented. And the question was, should these conditions always be reported even without clinical significance of treatment, evaluation, et cetera? And the shorter answer, and I refer to the detailed answer, but the shorter answer I wanna give you is that they said yes. However, a similar question was also asked about the overweight diagnosis without any clinical significance, workup, evaluation, et cetera. And the answer is no, that would not be reported unless it meets the criteria for other secondary diagnosis reporting. So again, the obesity, morbid obesity would be reported because it's always clinically significant. So you don't need that clinical significance to be included. Read the detail though. Another guideline that they discussed is an issue around the BMI around pregnancy. And this has come up, I've heard it several times in the last year, the question around BMI and pregnancy. However, the guidance told us that although obesity can be complicating of pregnancy, we wouldn't code the BMI in a pregnancy. So that's an official guideline, and it's in the coding clinic as well. If you have obesity complicating a pregnancy, we would assign the ICD-10-CM code 
of the O99214 plus the specific obesity code from the E66 category. So that's an important guideline. Again, the BMI is not reported during pregnancy. Also, on pages 90 through 92, there's some very valuable guidance around situations where someone, a coding educator or consultant, has advised other coding professionals to disregard the coding clinic because maybe they disagree with them or they um, think that there's conflicting information. And Coding Clinic has replied to that, and one of the things that they advise is that you must be following the official guidelines and conventions of Coding Clinic, and that if you are not, this could be an issue ethically. So we want to be sure that we're following that and read the full content of this issue of Coding Clinic. It really has a wealth of terrific information, valuable guidance that we can all now take and apply. So I'll turn it back over to you, Erica. Thank you. Thanks, Glorianne. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Glorianne Bryant. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And Glorianne, thank you. You can read Glorianne's excellent article on the fourth quarter coding clinic for the American Hospital Association. It's in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. This morning, our lead story is about sepsis 3. It's in the news because United Healthcare announced it's going to use this definition to determine if sepsis is clinically valid. Here now to report our lead story is a friend of this broadcast, Dr. Edward Hugh. Good morning, Dr. Hugh. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. A couple weeks ago on Monitor Monday, I spoke about how the current definition of sepsis, known as sepsis 3, was, in my opinion, the best definition for the medical community to use at this time. This week, I'm going to discuss the clinical diagnosis of sepsis. Sepsis diagnoses are a frequent source of disagreement between providers and payers. I'm not advocating for the capture of more or fewer sepsis diagnoses, but rather for correct sepsis diagnoses. Sepsis diagnoses impact not only a provider's DRG-based payment, but also government subsidies to insurers who offer Medicare Advantage or ACA exchange plans. The same definition needs to be applied consistently and correctly by all. The sepsis-3 definition is, quote, life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection, end quote. What about SOFA, S-O-F-A? Isn't that the definition of sepsis-3? No, it is not. A myth that I want to dispel is that SOFA criteria must be met in order to diagnose sepsis, because that is not true. If a clinician feels that a patient has a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection, based on a reasonable clinical assessment, then that patient has sepsis. Arguing that a patient is not septic because the SOFA score did not change by two points is putting the cart before the horse. The sepsis-3 authors would have liked to have developed a new and validated organ dysfunction tool to accompany the sepsis-3 definition, but there was neither time nor resources to do so. However, they recognized that some clinical criteria would have to be put forth to assist the diagnosis of sepsis. They actually studied three different tools to identify the organ dysfunction in the new sepsis definition, the Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score, or SOFA, the Logistic Organ Dysfunction System, or LODS, and the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, or SIRS. SOFA and LODS both performed better than SIRS. Because SOFA is easier to administer than LODS, the SOFA score was chosen. That's the only reason. So let's take a closer look at SOFA. The SOFA score was created in 1996 by one of the sepsis-3 authors, Dr. Jean-Louis Vincent. It looks for markers of dysfunction in one of six functional groups, 
respiration, coagulation, liver, cardiovascular, central nervous system, and renal. Specific inputs include the PF ratio, which is a measure of hypoxemia, platelet count, bilirubin level, mean arterial pressure or use of vasopressors, Glasgow Coma Scale, creatinine level, and urine output. Points are assigned to each organ system, and the points are simply added. A change of two points over baseline is indicative of significant organ dysfunction. If the baseline score is not known, the baseline is presumed to be zero points. Several specific questions arise with the practical application of the SOFA inputs. To determine a PF oxygen ratio, technically an arterial blood gas, or ABG, is required. If an ABG is not obtained, does that mean the input cannot be scored? No, because the relationship between oxygen pressure and oxygen saturation, as well as the relationship between inspired oxygen and various oxygen delivery devices, is quite well established. When inferring a partial pressure of oxygen and fraction of inspired oxygen provided, however, it is wise to be conservative in estimates where there can be no reasonable doubt that the PF ratio is below 300. Regarding the Glasgow Coma Scale, the three component inputs may not all be documented, but an abnormal result in one input can guarantee that the score cannot be higher than a certain number. The most conservative or highest number should be used. What if the organ that is dysfunctioned is also the source of infection, such as pneumonia causing hypoxemia? According to a sepsis-3 lead author, the panel discussed this and the organ system should still be included. For practicality, SOFA inputs should also be taken from the same 24-hour period to avoid confounding by time. In summary, SOFA is a tool that can be used to help support the diagnosis of sepsis, but lack of a SOFA score change does not rule sepsis out. Calculating the proper SOFA score can be challenging, but remember that the clinician is the person who should make the final diagnosis of sepsis, not an auditor sitting on a SOFA. I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Reamer. Thanks, Eddie. Actually, I was going to ask you, what do you do if a payer misapplies the definition and then tries to deny the case based on not meeting the SOFA criteria? That's a great question, Erica, because when, when I initially uh, reached out to the, one of the, the correspondence lead author for sepsis 3 when the definition first came out a couple years ago, uh, I was assuming that the clinical criteria, the SOFA-based criteria, was what they wanted folks to use. And I was really struck um, by, by how vehemently he said, no, that's not the definition of sepsis. The definition of sepsis is the life-threatening organism function caused by the dysregulated host response to infection. So he was very clear, and the sepsis 3 authors are very clear that that is the definition of sepsis. And SOFA is merely one of three tools that they evaluated and they happened to pick one because they needed to pick one out of practicality. So I would argue that very clearly the sepsis 3 document says that the definition is the the sentence that I, that I read previously or that I stated previously, and the clinical criteria is the SOFA. So, so we should not be putting the cart before the horse, as I mentioned. The, the definition of sepsis is the definition, and SOFA is just a clinical criteria to help identify sepsis. I completely agree with everything you said, Eddie. That was Dr. Edward Hugh. Dr. Hugh is the Executive Director of Inpatient Physician Advisor Services for the University of North Carolina Healthcare System and president of the American College of Physician Advisors. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And uh, Dr. Hugh, thank you so very much for that excellent report. Now, there's an issue that's got the attention of our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. So, once again, here is Dr. Reamer with her popular segment called Talk Pack. Chuck, when I reviewed the third quarter coding clinic advice, I was hooked by the very first question. 
The scenario was a diabetic patient with a gangrenous decubitus ulcer of the heel, which was documented as stage 3 necrotic decubitus ulcer of left heel associated with diabetic neuropathy and peripheral vascular disease. The question posed was what to use as a principal diagnosis. In this week and next week's installment of my two-part series, you can read my entire exposition regarding the issues but I'll give you the Reader's Digest version right now. Is a foot ulcer on a diabetic foot always considered a diabetic foot ulcer? Is a pressure ulcer of a diabetic not necessarily considered a diabetic foot ulcer? I'm afraid someone with too little clinical understanding tackled this complex question and gave some questionable advice. First, It irks me when clinical explanations are done in unclinical terms, providing insufficient information. The respondent first stated explaining why this was not a diabetic ulcer by saying, diabetic ulcers typically involve the foot starting on the toes and moving upward. This does not mean anything in the clinical realm. Is upward dorsal or cranial? I think what she meant was that the ulceration of the forefoot is likely to be a diabetic foot ulcer, and then an ulcer on the heel is more likely to primarily result from a pressure injury, just like it does on a non-diabetic who has limited mobility. The term diabetic foot ulcer refers to an ulcer on a diabetic, which almost invariably results from neuropathy, ischemia, or a neuroischemic etiology. Peripheral neuropathy in a diabetic is overwhelmingly likely to be due to the diabetes, and the within guideline applies. Peripheral angiopathy is exceedingly common in the diabetic as well, so it also permits assumptive coding. However, if the ulcer is designated as a pressure ulcer in the documentation, then coding clinic advises to use a pressure ulcer code instead of a diabetic foot ulcer code. This is reasonable to me. It is also reasonable to use the I-96 gangrene, not elsewhere classified, as the principal diagnosis if you accept that the ulcer is uniquely classified as a pressure ulcer. Sole attribution isn't outrageous because it seems illogical to have a pressure ulcer and a non-pressure ulcer due to diabetes of the same site at the same time. But I can't reconcile having gangrene as a principal diagnosis, but having diabetes with diabetic peripheral angiopathy without gangrene as a secondary diagnosis. Not only doesn't it make any clinical sense whatsoever, it seems to go against the indexing, which clearly mandates E11.52 for verbiage of type 2 diabetes with gangrene. Furthermore, the relationship between the gangrenous decubitus and the diabetic neuropathy and peripheral vascular disease was supported in this case by the phrase associated with. Coding clinic quarter four of 2018, as Glorianne said, reinforces that you shouldn't blindly follow consultants' advice, but should go back to conventions and guidelines if coding seems counterintuitive. Can you have gangrene as a principal diagnosis and E1151 type 2 diabetes with diabetic peripheral angiopathy without gangrene in the same patient 
at the same encounter. What do you all think? Back to you, Chuck. We've got time for just a couple of questions. This is for you, Eddie. Lisa asked, sepsis 3 is not a codable term. So what do we do if this term is documented? So I'm going to tell you that the sepsis 3 is what's making the issue. So how do you get your doctors to make sure that they're documenting sepsis and then all sepsis now is really severe sepsis? So we need to make sure that they give us documentation that gets us there. Eddie, have you seen doctors saying sepsis 3 as their diagnosis? I have seen some uh, clinicians documenting sepsis 3. Um, and it's clear that sepsis 3 is just the new, docu- is the new definition or the new term for sepsis. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, a, um, I'm not a, a coding expert. I'm not a CCS. Um, but, but to me, I, I would say that you would code sepsis from that. The, the sepsis 3 document did not, uh, when they published their recommendations to basically code severe sepsis when sepsis 3 is documented, is is not one that that's really supported by the coding guidelines, to my knowledge. Correct. Um, because so usually severe sepsis, either with or without septic shock, would generally be a secondary diagnosis and not a principal diagnosis. So what I would say is, is that we need to wait for the CDC to reconcile the the, the sepsis in ICD-10 CM uh, with the new sepsis three definition. Um, what I would suggest, and, and this is just my opinion only, is that when a doctor documents sepsis three that you treat that as sepsis, but if they additionally document severe sepsis, either with or without septic shock, then you would assign those codes because it's not up to the coder to clinically validate the diagnoses, but rather to code what what the doctor has documented. But that's just my opinion. So if they say sepsis 3, you really should probably get the doctor to say sepsis. But my recommendations to people is to figure out some sort of a mechanism to have an expansion where you get them to say sepsis with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction. That is actually what the definition of sepsis is now, and it gives the coders permission to pick up the appropriate code, which is severe sepsis in addition to the sepsis. Thank you. That's going to be a wrap for this, our 345th edition of Talking Tuesday. And Eric, I want to thank our panelists today, Gloria and Brian, Dr. Edward Hugh, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, and Dr. Jennifer Rubin. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talking Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another edition of Talking Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talking Tuesday. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.